All right, there go the coolest people in the church. It's talking to Connie and Bill and getting to see what some of the things they're going to do today are, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're not going to have that much fun uh, because we don't have any marshmallows or anything, but um, they do. So if you are a parent of a Pathfinder, you've got a snack coming your way later. What we're going to do is take a look at one of the books of the Bible that after you've read it once, it kind of gets overlooked, but it has a lot of truth in it. It has, uh, especially for us today, and it is one of those just hidden gems that God has um, kept in there for us as we are walking, I guess you'd say, this, this modern American life. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of similarities to what happened in the book of Esther. So if you turn, turn please, to um, Esther chapter 1. As I was preparing for this message, I think I've said this every time, too. I just think that everything that I'm studying could be better as like a growth group. We just need more time to look into God's Word and, and read what's being said, learn the lessons. Uh, it really, Esther could last about six weeks, and you could still be gleaning new things from, from what is there. So I'm going to try the impossible, which is get through it in one hour or about a half hour, uh, and still learn a few things that we can apply to our lives. And as I was preparing, um, there's a lot of different ways that you can, you can present Esther. You can go chronologically. A uh, character study would be really cool of each of the five major players within the book. One of the things that the Lord impressed on my heart is just the power of one something. Uh, that was used throughout the story to move the plot along or to accomplish God's work there in the story of Esther. There are a lot of one-somethings that take place. So the first thing that uh, we see in Esther is this feast is being thrown by the king of Persia, Ahasuerus. Some translations and history uh, connects Xerxes I to this man. Uh, that's one of his other names. And he decides he's going to throw a 180-day feast, almost like a world's fair, just showing off the glory of the kingdom of Persia. I don't, I don't even want to know what the, the check looks like to write for a 180-day feast. And that's just really for his servants and for the princes of all 127 provinces that are mentioned here in chapter 1. And then after that 180 days is over, he throws another feast, this time open to the public in the Winter Palace of Shushan, and it lasts seven days. That's where we find the first one-something if you're taking notes, the first one that I'd like to point out is one dissent, D-I-S-S-E-N-T. One person saying no caused a chain reaction that really makes up the rest of the book. Let's take a look at Esther, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. So one of the things that's interesting, we didn't read it as a passage, but in, right before this set of verses, they explain some of the way this seven-day feast works. You come in, and you're celebrating with the king, 
and you have access to his wine cellar, and you're allowed to drink as much or as little as you want. And the reason that he puts it in scripture, I don't know. But what we can gather is that King Ahasuerus is one of those people that drinks a lot, not a little. So this, this wealthy, lavish party is taking place. People are celebrating. People are consuming alcoholic beverages. And, and the king gets too merry with wine and starts to have a really bad idea. Let's bring Vashti out, and uh, some commentators go either way. Either have her come out and, and take off her veil, which would have been uh, degrading enough to the people of that culture, or some people have even said that she's only being commanded to come out with the crown, which is even more degrading. And this man loses what, what as I study, is just this wonderful woman who was queen. She looks at the chamberlain and she says, no, I'm not going to do that. First of all, she's hosting her own party, her own feast for the women, the, the sisters, the wives of all of these important people that have come to the palace as part of the celebration. And two, uh, she, she's wiser than the king is at this moment, and she's not going to let him be embarrassed by this bad idea. So she says no. Then we find something interesting. The king is very wroth, and he starts to talk to those chamberlains. What are we going to do to punish Vashti because she won't come and do what I say? And we have this one um, counselor who gives really bad advice, and he answers the king. This is verse number 16. He says before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to, wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. Do you agree? She says, no, I'm not going to degrade myself in front of a bunch of drunk men. And this counselor says, oh, I am offended for you. In fact, everyone should be offended by this because if they hear what, this is the continuation of the verses, if Vashti is able to say no to her husband, the king of Persia, then the other women throughout Persia are going to start saying no to us. It just makes you wonder, like, what kind of home life does this counselor have? You know, my wife already says no, so let's make it law that she can't. Maybe, I don't know. It's not necessarily important, but what we do see is that in his drunken state, in his state of not having all of his faculties, Ahasuerus falls to the bad council, and they banish Vashti from ever serving as queen or being in the presence of the king again. So that sets the ball rolling for uh, a new queen to be needed. This one descent is going to set up the stage for Esther to make an appearance. But there's some time that passes in between the seven-day feast of chapter 1 and the verses that start chapter 2. History helps us connect the dots of the timeline. Ahasuerus being widely considered to be Xerxes I, we know that at some point in his reign, early in his reign, he decides to try to conquer much of Greece. And the Bible just says, after these things. But what that might mean is, during this time, and possibly why the Chamberlains, all the princes of Persia were there at all, is they decide to attack Greece, they fail, and chapter 2 sees Xerxes coming back home from a failed battle where men were lost, where money was lost, and yet no victory. 
The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 2, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. So he has remorse. Notice he's not partying. He's come to himself. He's suffered great loss. And now he's reflecting on just how great of a queen he had while he had her. Uh, historians and people, some of the scholars of the Talmud even, um, believe that Vashti was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And so she had grown up in royalty. She knew how to be uh, queenly, and now she's gone. What am I going to do? Of course, he has, he has the harem because that's Persian culture at the time. But what he's looking for is someone who will stand by his side and be a queen like Vashti. And other writers um, of this historical account outside of the book of Esther even mention that he, he keeps a picture, he keeps a, a painting or some sort of artistic rendering of Vashti in his chambers at all times. And the tradition says that once um, the activities of chapter 2 are over and Esther's been chosen queen, that's when he finally decides he can remove that picture of Vashti. He, she was one of his true love. She was the one that would have made Persia great, uh, and she's been lost. So upon his return, he seems remorseful about the banishment, and he, he's looking for advice on what to do. And he could just get remarried. But the way that, that scripture tells us, it just goes over the top. You know what you need to do? You need to have a Miss Persia contest. Yes, we need to bring all of the beautiful young women, virgins from all 127 provinces to come try to win your love and be the queen. But, but Vashti had like the pedigree. She was Nebuchadnezzar's great-granddaughter. Doesn't matter. Beauty's going to make up for all of it. We've been watching Disney and we know. <laughs> Just give it a chance. And that brings us to one particular Jewish girl who's being raised by one recorded family member. The decree is sent out. All of the beautiful young virgins to the palace, especially those around Shushan, you are um, commanded to come here and prepare for your one chance at winning the king's affection and being the queen of all Persia. And Mordecai who has been raising Esther as his own, who is uh, her cousin, he, he gives her some advice and says, you know, when you go, make sure that they don't know your, what your lineage is. Don't let them know that you're a Jewess. Just go. Do your best. God be with you. This is, you know, these words are not in scripture. I'm just saying goodbye like Mordecai would. God be with you and... and do, do what God has, has maybe led you to this moment for. She's collected. She's brought into the court of the women. And she's put under the, um, the keeping of Haggai. He's the keeper of the women. Poor guy. He's got all these women from all over Persia. And he has to try to handle them all. They probably got different languages and dialects. Different personalities for sure. And his job is to make them all queen ready within a year. So we've got one year to make it happen, and then one night, one date with the king to try to win his love. Uh, let's take a look then at Esther 2, 15 through 17. These maidens, they are all brought into the palace. They're given six months of, of spices and sweet odors and myrrh, oil of myrrh, and then six months 
trying to continue to purify them. They're learning court life. They're learning the law, which we can kind of tell because Esther, later on as she's speaking, seems to have a good handle on what the laws are. And I, as I'm thinking about six months sitting around in the oil of myrrh, like, hey, you'd be pruny, you know? It's just like, I don't know that I'm ready. Look at these hands. But they get ready. Esther's turn comes in verse 15. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into, in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. I'm going to 17. All right. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into the house royal in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So she goes through the training, and she's, she continues to be a graceful, respectful, humble person with inner beauty that she had to have had already. There is only so much training that can be done to a person that doesn't already pull out qualities they had inside. And yet she's very, and the word's not really clever, God orchestrated this, but she's very, um, I guess I'll use the word clever, I can't think of another, to, to find out what Haggai thinks. They're all new, right? All these women have been trucked into the palace, but Haggai's been around. He knows the king. He remembers Vashti. So she is willing to get advice from him. What should I, what should I wear? How should I respond to the king in certain situations? What would you have me put on jewelry-wise when I go into the king? See, some people, they're going to say, oh, you know, I have access to the king's treasury, you know, and they just weigh themselves down, you know, with jewelry and gold and whatever. This is my one chance. I don't know if they're allowed to take it with them. Um, I think I remember watching a, a film version of this where they did, which would be really cool. I would change my choice. <laughs> you know, I might have lost the king, but look at this wealth. And then they leave from that one night uh, opportunity with the king, and they are destined to be living in the house of the concubines for the rest of their lives. So either way, they win a pretty good second prize. And Esther just asks Haggai, what, what should I wear? What should I bring with me? And he picks it out with his knowledge of the king, gives it to Esther. And we don't get to know many of the details. We do know, though, that she knocked his socks off, whatever that meant, okay? Um, her grace, her queenly demeanor. And the application for this is nothing to do with dating, even though, you know, it would be some sort of help to, to live more demurely than some of the people that are out in the dating world today. We've lost a lot of class, but Esther's application is not about dating. It's more about uh, what can we as Christians be, be uh, looking like out in the world day to day? Always be prepared to be a witness for Christ. Develop the inner qualities within yourself that show people who you are. Um, don't, don't let yourself miss an opportunity to make him known or to give him glory by careless living. She was there for a year with a ton of other women. 
it would have been really difficult to continue to maintain poise in class and, and just not, I don't know, not um, make a fool of herself. I would have failed. <laughs> um, but Esther, God appoints that she's going to be the new queen of Persia. That leads us to our next one. So Esther becomes the wife of the king, and Mordecai, we see him sitting at the king's gate, and he's going to be there for the rest of the book, whether it's because he got a position uh, helping the king as some sort of guardsman there, the, that gate, the king's gate, protects the entire palace complex, or whether he volunteered to sit there day after day because Esther is within that palace and he wants to be close to her, or uh, maybe as a Jew, he has been subcontracted to hear the grievances of those who are coming to the king's gate with grievances. He has the Jewish perspective, and so he's sitting there. Either way, as he's sitting there at the king's gate, this uh, plan to assassinate the king comes to Mordecai. This was fun to research because commentators kind of go all over the spectrum. Either he just overheard it, and he retained that knowledge and told Esther. Or there's, there have been a couple commentators that think maybe because he was a Jew, these two chamberlains that had a problem with the king tried to bring Mordecai into the assassination plot, trying to play off of uh, Jews and Persians' differences and maybe a racial kind of divide between them. But Mordecai does the right thing. He doesn't keep silent. He doesn't look the other way. Instead, he gets news to Esther immediately, and Esther reports to the king that his life is in danger, and she makes sure he knows that Mordecai is the one that uncovered this plot. So this one report, looking at Esther chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, is going to set up Mordecai for the future events of the book. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, Two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth, and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. The king was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. When the inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. And we know the rest of the story. And swiftly forgotten. Okay, but it's there. He's on the record book. What do we learn from Mordecai? Do what is right no matter what the situation. He could have stayed silent, and the assassination plot would never have touched him. Those two chamberlains would still have been caught, still have been found out. But think about what would have happened if Ahasuerus had died. Where does that leave Esther as the widow of the king? Usually with the power change, Esther would fall out. And what if... While Haman, who's about to be um, revealed within the book, as Haman is making his rise to power, if he gets in with the next king who has no connection to the Jews via Esther, what will happen to the Jews? See, God is working. That one report and that one decision to do the right thing may be the chain reaction that protects the Jews later on. Then we find that as Haman rises to power... Ah, man, he's just so evil. And you know how, as I've preached before, I've given you a look into my, my humorous mind. So, like, Haman is always twirling that evil mustache in my, in my mind. It's like, ah, Queen Esther, okay. Like, <laughs> this wicked, 
He's here to collect the mortgage. All right. And, um, but Haman rises to power. In a couple of different commentaries, as the Bible mentions, he's an Agagite. The connection is made to King Agag from way back when Saul was king. Perhaps Haman has royal lineage as well, which raises him up to be that second-in-command advisor to the king. But what we do know about the Amalekites is that God has waged war on them since that moment. That he has promised he's going to destroy them, and that over time within Scripture, we see Israel and the Amalekites always in conflict. And now here we have, potentially, one of the last Amalekites now second-in-command and given the power to do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. Also, Ahasuerus, we already mentioned, has the propensity to be really dumb if he's put into the wrong situation. He just seems to always bring bad counsel to himself instead of being wise. So let's read verses 1 through 6 and get that um, introduction to Haman. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. Okay, that's important. I skip that every time I read until now when I have to share it. The king commanded that people reverence Haman the way that Haman wants Mordecai to reverence him. I know I'm skipping ahead, but I, you are familiar with the story. But just know the king commanded it. So for Mordecai to not do this is breaking the law. It's not like Haman's just, oh, one Jew, I can't believe it. No, there's, there's a responsibility there for people to bow down when Haman comes by. But um, Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see where, whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. All right, what is he telling them? I'm a Jew. What does that come with? Oh, crowd time. <laughs> Why can't he bow to Haman? Why can't he give him the reverence that the king demands? They only bow to God. And uh, it's a very American thing, too. When we were in the revolution, the, there was some, there were a couple of people that went over to England, and, and they were supposed to bow to the king, and they, they chose not to, and it got recorded, which I think is awesome. Right. Okay. And they're still mad at us, by the way. Let me go on a tangent. So I went to England, got to go see um, Windsor Castle. Fabulous. Creepy. Most of it's decorated with weapons. So there's that. But um, inside the chapel, and this is definitely not Esther. Just hold on. We're just sharing at this point. In Windsor Chapel, um, there are all of these seats that are designated for Knights of the Royal Garter, those who are supposed to protect the Queen. And we jokingly said to the tour guide, like, what's it going to take for someone from America to get one of these seats? And the guy looked at us. It has been 240 years. We don't allow people from the colonies to be. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you. We're going to the gift shop now. We're going <laughs> to pay for that insult. So there's bad blood. <laughs> 
And uh, for the Jews, though, it's a religious matter. Mordecai cannot bow because that would be against what they do for the Lord. Would that be enough? Would that be something that the king could hear about and maybe change the law a little bit to, to make a concession for many of the people that are in his kingdom? Doesn't even get to that point. Because Haman allows one grievance, and that's our next thing, one grievance to become one seed of bitterness that leads him to decide to annihilate all of the Jews. Well, if you don't bow to me, that means that the others won't bow to me, and we're not having that. People are going to bow to me, and if that's the case, then I want them all gone. What a, what a train of thought, right? Have, you have been mad before, right? You have even probably struggled with bitterness at some point in your life. But for you to go from, I don't like this one person, to I'm going to find every person that's like that person and remove them is just satanic. And that's really where I, it's not in scripture, it says, and Satan had his hand on, but that's what, what we see. Everything that Haman wants to do, Satan would love to do too. And we see that he is going to let this bitterness fester. He's going to go through the trouble of picking a date um, through using the pure or the purim, which is like casting lots to decide on what good date there would be. It's just such a weird concept to us. Because for us, we have the Holy Spirit and we're able to read scripture. We're able to pray for wisdom from God. But during this time, uh, both the Jews and those who are not um, worshiping the one true God would do things like this, where we're either uh, rolling dice or we're pulling straws or whatever. We just need to find out what God wants. And Haman should take this as a sign, right? Since he's wanting to take signs, he has to roll for every day to see if it's a good day to annihilate the Jews. How many months are there in our year? Easy question. Get it now while you can. 12, right? So what day does he end up getting a good roll on? The 14th day of the 12th month. There's not that much left. <laughs> He's a bad roller. <laughs> Don't play games with him, okay? Is this a good day? No. And he should be listening to that. Hey, maybe this is dumb. I would have quit after the first 30 rolls. But uh, I'm not, I don't have the bitterness Haman did about this. He finally picks an auspicious day. He got the role he wanted. And so now he's going to go to the king about this problem. Some of this stuff now is speculation, okay? But he's going into the king's um, chambers, and he is wanting the king to sign off on the execution of the Jews on the, 14th, the 13th, excuse me, day of the 12th month. And some of the things he uses really play on what the king has just gone through. Hey, do you want thousands and thousands of silver? Because I know where we can get it. The Jews have it. And they are a danger to us. Okay. I really didn't want to make a lot of connections to like today. But they're a danger to our democracy. You know, we need to take care of them while we still have a chance. Uh, there's a lot in here, and I'm, I promised myself I would just stick to Scripture. But if you look through the lens of, like, us right now, it's creepy how close all of this plays out. 
But he says, I'm going I'm to fill your treasuries with silver. We're going to remove someone who's a danger to you. These people, the Jews, they don't reverence your law. In fact, uh, one of them at least, and I don't know if he said the name or not, um, but he's like, one of them for sure does not bow when I walk through the gate. <laughs> the king, <gasps> right? <laughs> Let's do it. More for the money because the king has just failed an invasion of Greece. And mostly because he trusts his advisors. Well, if you think it's a good idea, okay, we'll do it. And they send out these, these uh, dispatches to all of the 127 provinces. And the Bible makes a really interesting comment. That this is verse 15, the last verse in chapter 3. The king and Haman sat down to drink. There it is again, okay? Ahasuerus is just not a good king when there is liquor involved. And while they're sitting down to drink, to congratulate themselves on this new campaign that's coming in one year or so, the Bible says the city Shushan was perplexed. Everyone, Jews, obviously, they get it. <laughs> on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Jews... All of the Jews will be annihilated, and the non-Jews are saying the same thing. How could a king that's supposed to be writing into law things that really can't be changed, going so far as to say, nah, good morning, everyone. Today, we've planned a genocide of one whole people group within our kingdom. Does that mean that the king could do that later to anyone else? The 127 provinces span from India to Ethiopia. There's a lot of different people, groups, and cultures in that. What if, what if one of the other counselors says, you know what? I really don't like these people. Um, I don't have any reason. But let's get rid of them. And we'll get their money. The king could do that at any time. It's too authoritarian, and it shocks the palace. That leads Mordecai uh, to quickly mourn the the horrible news that has happened and we see him sitting at the king's gate again now with a grievance of his own this death date he's wearing sackcloth he's got ashes on his head he's grieving uh you're not allowed to go inside the palace complex in sackcloth bible makes note so he's sitting right outside but this like i said before the gatehouse is to the palace so word comes to esther that mordecai who no one knows is the cousin but Mordecai is out there grieving, and she sends clothes. What are you mourning for? She doesn't know. And he refuses the clothes. They come back to her, and she says, go down there and ask him what on earth is going on. Why is he mourning, and why won't he uh, not get over it, but why won't he change his clothes and, and go through the proper channels? That's when the news comes. We are all in danger. In a little under a year, we will all be dead because of Haman. And so what you need to do, Mordecai doesn't pull any punches here. You need to speak on our behalf. Now's the time. The Bible doesn't really tell us why exactly Mordecai told her to keep it secret. But we know from what happens here that God's been holding that information until it's going to have the most weight. Right? And so now's the time. You're going to have to reveal that you yourself are a Jew and plead on our behalf. Esther has a choice, one choice. She's fine. And Mordecai, maybe Esther doesn't actually think this, but Mordecai goes ahead and, and hits that point. 
while he's talking to her. You are fine for now. But who's to say that you aren't in just as much danger as the rest of us? When, I don't know, all of the reasons that she was chosen queen are no longer reasons that the king finds important. Or um, perhaps that God, and it's not said here, we'll say why in a second, but perhaps God has raised you up into this position because you need to act in this moment. If you don't, God can just as easily find salvation for the Jews from somewhere else. But, and I will read uh, this verse for you. This is what we would consider the key verse or like the most memorable verse of Esther. You could probably say it with me. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This is your moment. I would love to know what my moment is, but we don't, right? And that's why the application from before is so important. We just have to be ready for when God makes it our moment. Esther finds out very quickly that the truth of this matter, you might be the only one that can help us. Esther, I said, knew the law. She mentions no one can go to the king without his um, calling them to him. So for me to do this is not uh, only dangerous, but I, I will have reason to be killed. Vashti just said no, and it wasn't because of the law. She just said no to her drunk husband, and see what happened to her? She was banished. We, we never get to hear from her again. Now I'm going to actually break the law? What will be my punishment if Vashti was banished over just saying no? But she hears the wisdom of Mordecai's words and asks for him to gather all of the Jews in Shushan and fast and pray for three days, no food, no water. She's going to take all of her uh, ladies' maids and do the same thing, which I find interesting. She's a Jew, but the ladies' maids aren't. But she, uh, like I, well, you said before, Shushan is just shocked by this news. And so she's able to get them to fast and pray with her in preparation for the moment she breaks the law and approaches the king unbidden. I like what she says here at the end of verse 16. She says, if I perish, I perish. What, a, what abandonment to God's plan. I need to read you this. I didn't want to put it on my podium because it's uh, <laughs> rather large. But um, in the Bible Believer's Commentary uh, on the book of Esther, they make th this paragraph comment, and I wanted to just read it word for word because it's so good. The Christian's attitude in difficult and trying circumstances should not be one of fatalism like Esther's. She was going before a pagan king and breaking his law that he can't change. She says, if I perish, I perish. You may already be tracking with the Christian's throne room, but we don't have one of fatalism, but a view of optimism, especially when it comes to approaching the heavenly throne for grace to help in time of need. What Esther did not have, we have. Bold and confident access. The scepter of God's forgiveness has been stretched out to us at Calvary. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 She has the fear of death on her from the moment she leaves her chambers to the moment he outstretches his scepter, which we'll need to read in a second. We, thanks to Christ, have the ability to go into the throne room unbidden, and have no fear that God will not only hear us, 
but he will answer our prayers. Let me read chapter 5, where we see Esther actually approach the throne. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. And then I'll just paraphrase. He asks, what will you have? You can have up to half my kingdom. And she invites Haman and the king to a banquet. Just one banquet. Uh, Let me stop here and say this. It's not Esther's looks that get her into that throne room. It's not Esther's, uh, I don't know, talent. It's not any of the things. God let her find grace in the sight of the king. Not only is God working behind the scenes to make that happen, but uh, I'm just thinking as the king here for a second, like maybe they know each other well enough that the king realizes that Esther would not do this unless it was important. She's not breaking the law just to break the law. He remembers back to when they first met, and she was so gracious and so graceful, and she, she just wowed him. He remembers the reason why uh, he chose her above all the others. This is, again, speculation. But in that moment where she's thinking, if he doesn't set that scepter on me, I'm dead, he's thinking, all right, I need to hear what she has to say. I already lost Vashti. I don't want to lose Esther, too. So the invitation um, comes uh, to them that Haman and the king are going to have a banquet, just them with the queen. And the rest of the the story plays out uh, very quickly. I'm just going to go ahead and summarize it, and then we'll get to that fifth uh, point, the one step of faith. I mean, we already covered it, but we'll talk more about it for us. So Haman and the king sit down with the queen. They have a great dinner. And the king asks, so what did you want to talk about? And, he, and she tells him, you know, I just wanted to invite you to another banquet. Weird. Okay. <laughs> but Haman is just over the moon about it. Wow. Not only one um, private dinner with the king and queen of Persia, but now a second one. And he leaves, and you've already been familiar with the story, but there's Mordecai. Ugh. He's coming off a of cloud nine, and there's the one guy that won't bow. Enough. I'm going home. And then this is where a, a character study of Haman would be so fun, right? Twirling his mustache, he comes home to his house. And his wife, what's wrong, honey? Gather our friends. I have tea to spill. Is basically how it plays out. If you're a Gen Zer, you understand. If you're not, that means they're going to just sit around and complain. Okay, so, so he just talks about Mordecai and how horrible it is. And he talks about how, how great things are going other than Mordecai. And his friends, again, unwise counsel. Seems like everyone has it in this book. They say, why don't you build a gallows, okay? Now, this is not, you know, hang them high, Wild West, you know, we'll, we'll hang them with a rope. The gallows is like a 75-foot-tall pike, and they're going to get that person, and they're, gonna, you know, they're not going to tie him to it. They're going to just put him on top of it and let him kind of, I don't want to say much more, okay? 
let gravity do its work in the most excruciating form of execution up to this point. So why don't you just build a gallows and then get the king to let you put Mordecai on it? Sounds doable. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but we do have, if, even if this doesn't work, we do have the death date coming up where all of the Jews will be taken care of. So he says, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's build a gallows. And so he's building the gallows. Meanwhile, the king can't sleep. This is another one of my ones. I, I wrote so many, okay? It's like two pages, and I didn't want to give you all of them because you'd just be like, I can't hear the word one anymore. But one night of sleeplessness led to one reading of the Chronicles, and they found that they forgot one honor, and that's Mordecai. And so uh, the king is working on what to do about this, and he, he pretty much stays up all night. Either way, Haman comes back in. He, he may, you know, be ready to try, to try to get the king to let him kill Mordecai. But as soon as he steps in, the king says, Oh, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I feel bad for Haman. I don't feel bad for Haman, right? Miscommunications happen. And he's just come from a private dinner the night before with the king and queen. So, like, that's still in his head. And the king is saying, okay, so what should I... Maybe he's got a smile, like, what should I do for, you know, someone that, that I'd really want to honor? Not saying it's you, but it's totally you. It's how Haman heard it. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'll help. <laughs> and he says, you got to get clothes that the king is born and a crown and a horse let's put a crown on the horse as well okay that that did happen back in the day and we'll walk him through all the streets of the city with a guy proclaiming this is what happens to the man whom the king delights to honor all right cool go get that uh i'll get you the clothes you go get mordecai we got to get him ready because i want to do this pronto and Haman's just like what and this is probably the best one look at the foreshadowing. Haman spends the whole day being deeply humbled. Mordecai spends the whole day being praised, and it foreshadows what's going to happen when Haman ultimately dies. Mordecai will become second in command. Okay, I, need, I am almost done, and I am wrapping up, so about 11.10. If you're a time watcher, you'll still make it to the buffet. The second dinner takes place. And this time, the king is really wanting to know, Esther, you did not just invite us to a banquet to invite us to a banquet. And if you say you want to invite us to another banquet, we're not coming. You tell us what's going on. That's when this one secret is revealed. The one secret revealed at the right time leads to the death of Haman, the salvation of the Jews, the promotion of Mordecai to second in command of Persia. And she lets him know, Haman has been plotting to kill my people and me. And then, through more miscommunication of what's going on, uh, the king believes that Haman is trying to be even more wicked than killing an entire group of people. And so they sentence him to death on the very gallows that he created for Mordecai, which you know. So let's make two more applications, and then we'll be done. For Mordecai, uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote about him and said, Mordecai was a true patriot. Therefore, being exalted to the highest position under Ahasuerus, he used his eminence to promote the prosperity of Israel. In this, he was a type of Jesus, who upon his throne of glory seeks not his own, but spends his power for his people. 
It were well if every Christian would be a Mordecai to the church, striving according to his ability for its prosperity. Some are placed in stations of affluence and influence. Let them honor their Lord in the high places of the earth and testify for Jesus before great men. Others have what is far better, namely, close fellowship with the King of Kings. Let them be sure to plead daily for the weak of the Lord's people, the doubting, the tempted, and the comfortless. We have the opportunity to be Mordecai's for this church and for our own nation. It is becoming very apparent that people who would walk according to the ways of the Bible are becoming fewer and fewer in our country. Be a Mordecai. Find ways to promote the Lord's people. Be praying for those you know are doubting, are being tempted, are comfortless. We're commanded in other places of Scripture to do that same thing. But channel, channel it as though you were Mordecai. Be that man who will stand in the gate, or woman, who would stand in the gate and would lead the cause of your people in the throne room or to the royalty that we serve. And then the last application, I'd like to go back to that one step of faith with Esther. This is really what drew me to this passage at all. Just the idea, the wonder uh, of Scripture. Okay, don't lose the wonder. If you have gotten to the point in your Bible reading where you're just like, ah, yep, mm -hmm, yep, throw the 80-year-old man into the lion's den. It happens every day. Or uh, I too could survive in a fish for three days after disobeying God's command. You've lost the wonder. The Bible is wild, okay? And it's just full of time and time again, God asking someone to do the impossible step, because if they do the step, then God will sweep in and accomplish his purpose. Enter the ark. Step of faith. Sacrifice your only son. Walk into the Jordan River. Step out of the boat. I would not have done it. <laughs> okay? No way. Why are we even on this boat? Go to Nineveh. Look and live. Wash in the pool of Siloam. Rise and walk. Strike the rock. Stand before Pharaoh. Put, your blood, put the blood of lambs on the doorpost to avoid the firstborn of your family being killed when the death angel comes. The Bible is not a normal kind of situation. Every single time that God asks his people to do something, it comes with risk and it comes with the necessity for faith. The first step of faith that a person can make is the step of faith into believing that God's son died on the cross for their sin. And all God is asking is that we take the step and say, I believe and I trust that Christ is my only way to heaven. After that, then the wild ride comes. You may be in a moment at, in your life right now where God is asking you to make a crazy step of faith where nothing seems to make sense except that God keeps putting the same action on your heart. I need to do this. I would say pray about it, right? For sure. And I know that if you're in this situation, you probably already are. But make sure it's of the Lord, and then don't be afraid to take the step. Why? Because God is just waiting for you to show that tiny bit of faith, and then he's going to accomplish the purpose for you. That is the best part of Christianity. And then I'll stop. 
This is the best part of Christianity is that we don't have to do the whole thing. We, of course, we didn't die on the cross. Christ did that. But I'm talking now as you're following him, you don't have to do the whole thing. When missionaries are called to the mission field, God is not saying, I'm putting all of the burden on you to save that entire nation. Not at all. All he's asking is, go there, be there, talk to the people you can talk to, and I will do the rest. I'm already working there. That's why I've called you. Or whatever it is. It's just so reassuring to know he only ever asks for one step. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Esther and this book that just holds so many treasures um, of what you are doing through your people behind the scenes and what, what one step of faith can accomplish. Lord, ultimately, the power belongs to you and the work is your work. I pray, Lord, that as we go through our, our week this week and our year, um, and as things get darker in our world, Lord, help us to see you in it and help us to take those steps of faith. Lord, may we not be fearful, but be bold and, and know that you have called us to this work and you have called us for as long as you do not send your son again um, for that rapture. But the time's approaching where the work will be done. And we want to make sure we get as much as we can done before you come. In Jesus' name, amen.